Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Harabird. Tonight, Canadians enjoy a pretty solid reputation for being friendly, right? In a recent Condé Nast poll of travelers, Canadian cities, imagine, took four of the top five places. Only Dublin, Ireland at four got in on the act, joining Quebec City, Victoria, Edmonton, and the friendliest place, hands down, Calgary. But are we really that nice, or are people just mistaking our politeness for friendliness? We find out. A Texas woman's social media posts about her many years taking revenge on a man who insulted and spat on a friend of hers has launched a debate over the pros and cons of an eye for an eye as we know it. So what is the psychology of revenge and why can it be harmful for the vengeful one as well as the target? It's called Pride Tape, sports tape in the rainbow colors of the Pride flag. It had been used around the NHL since 2016 as a visual symbol of support for the LGBTQ community until this year when the league suddenly decided to ban it. Well, this weekend, Arizona Coyotes defenseman Travis Dermott defied that ban and used the tape on his stick. We speak to the company's co-founder about Dermott's act of defiance or act of allyship and if other players may follow suit. But first, the heads of the so-called Five Eyes intelligence agencies, including the head of Canada's CSIS, gathered in the Silicon Valley last week to warn companies in the high-tech sector about the unprecedented threat posed by Chinese spying and theft of intellectual property. We speak to a former CSIS agent about just how rare it was for them to come together to issue that kind of message and why it was done. We're going to begin tonight with something that was on the news over the weekend. It was on 60 Minutes last night. It was this unprecedented gathering of the heads of all five of the Five Eyes intelligence services, including Canada's CSIS. Uh, they toured Silicon Valley last week, warning 15 major companies about the threat that China's uh, poses to intellectual property uh, to all of us. Again, the heads of the security services of the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand are urging the world to step up efforts to shield innovation from what they call unprecedented Chinese spying. And David Vigneault spoke to 60 Minutes. He revealed some pretty interesting stuff, including that the Chinese government builds uh, builds or buys in industrial sites in our countries that are actually co- covers, they say, for espionage. Have a listen. Is the Chinese government building industrial sites in your countries that are actually covers for espionage operations. David Vigneault of Canada. We have seen in the past uh, acquisition of, of land, acquisition of, uh, of different uh, companies where you, when you start to dig a little bit further, you realize that it's, uh, there is a, a, another intent. And we have seen and blocked attempt by the PRC to acquire uh, locations near sensitive strategic assets of the country where we knew that the ultimate purpose was for spying operations. It's quite the statement. Uh, Dan Stanton is Director of National Security at the University of Ottawa's Professional Development Institute. He himself is a former intelligence officer at CSIS and he joins me now. Dan, thanks so much. Oh, uh, great to be here, man. This was a really interesting to see all five of them together. Uh, I mean, it pointed out a few things about diversity, but to see all five of them together launching this message uh, was really interesting. And I'm wondering what you thought about about just the, I mean, the fact that it's the first time they've done this and why they would do it over a topic that we don't, we talk about it quite a bit, but we don't often talk about the technological spying side of things. And yet they seem to flag this as the most important one. Yeah, it is. It, it was great to see them. I, I had planned to watch it. I uh, was 
happy to see my my former director there, David Divisional. He was director when I, I retired a few years back, and see them there. There was about I think five of the twelve agencies represented. There's the Five Eyes Intel, including the second agencies. It's quite a group. There's twelve, right. and what we saw last night was what we refer to as the human agencies, is the, the human intelligence side, and it was interesting because. You know, every subject they talked about, they're basically all reading from the same song sheet. So what you hear playing out in Canada in terms of national security threats, you know, from a counterintelligence standpoint, it's exactly what Australia is experiencing, exactly with the United States and Britain and New Zealand. What did you make of the fact that they came together to do this in Silicon Valley of all places? I mean, there are many things they could be talking about, but they this was quite symbolic in the sense that they really want to focus on intellectual property and the threat that poses. And referring to China specifically, without just talking about the greater threat of things, but China and intellectual property was specifically what they wanted to call attention to. Yeah, I think, I mean, Silicon Valley, it always, it always signals the sort of the cutting edge, everything everything new in terms of technology and that, and, you know, I'll be frank that the United States is really the key target of, you know, foreign espionage, particularly Chinese. They've been, you know, there's been all sorts of cases, General Electric and every well else in terms of industrial espionage. So it is kind of symbolic to have them all there together. And I think it just reflects that, that, that intellectual property target, the, the, the newer things we normally didn't associate with national security, and that's sort of, I think, the point of it they're trying to get across is it's not really the sort of trench coat and fedoras, state-on-state espionage that we had to concern ourselves for. It's more of a softer target, industrial espionage, mining, all those areas that we didn't traditionally think of as being targeted by hostile intelligence or, or governments, per se. And those are actually the ones that are most vulnerable now and the most exposed. I was I was surprised to hear uh, David Vino, and this came up. Obviously, they had intelligence. I mean, sixty Minutes were asked about this. Yeah. The idea that the, you know, the Chinese government is through different proxies and front organizations is buying up property around sensitive yeah. locations, and it's just something we've never really. I don't think I've ever read about that here in the past. So it came, I think, as a bit of, not as a surprise. I mean, it's not surprising that that's attempted to be done, but the fact that we've thwarted it was interesting. Yeah, it is. I mean, we like, again, we're always looking for sort of some cloak and dagger or something clandestine than that. And then it's just something as simple as just buy it and use it as a platform. I mean, China's been buying properties and things all over the world that, you know, they've taken over a port in Sri Lanka and everything, things that are of strategic value to them. But as he indicated, some of these are being used as platforms for espionage, in this case, more likely industrial espionage. In the case of also the, the collective warning, I think, to universities, that came up as well. I guess that's been another, and Silicon Valley is not just Silicon Valley. It's also home to a whole bunch of schools that feed Silicon Valley. I think that's been a big, we've seen that here. That's been a big, an ongoing concern too for uh, the Five Eyes partners. It is, it's, it, and it's a tough one because there's issues around that. Universities are sensitive institutions. Um, can the government, like can the Canadian government disclose classified information no they can't so we have to look at things like our whole disclosure policy and things like that with government and it's the same in the in our allied countries as well so there's a lot of um i guess you could say modern day challenges that that are are facing in terms of national security in terms of our legal architecture and everything like that into how we're going to mitigate the threat we can't just issue general warnings all the time and say be careful 
you have to be able to engage these institutions and say, well, don't deal with that one over there, and I'll tell you the reason why. Yeah, one of the things that stood out to me watching the piece was just how uh, unequivocal the Five Eyes heads, the human and Five Eyes heads were. Uh, you know, Christopher Ray, who's the head of, uh, of, of it, was, it was the head of the CIA, I gather, um, said that you know it, it was an unpre- the first time they've ever appeared together publicly on any topic, the five of them, and it was about an unprecedented yeah. event to confront an unprecedented threat, and that's some pretty. I mean. You know, that's the kind of language you hear politicians talk about, but you don't often hear spy chiefs use that kind of language or appear together. It was almost political that way. Yeah, it is. I mean, there's there's obviously something driving it. And I think it's probably that, I mean, you know, they wouldn't have released it all on 60 Minutes. But I think that the threat from China has just been crossing thresholds that are deeply concerning. And so by doing this collectively like that, I think it just reinforces the messaging that has to get across to the respective populations. I mean, it, it is, it's almost alarmist in a way, but mm-hmm. um, it certainly isn't just a PR thing. I think there's a reason behind this messaging and also to reinforce the importance of the alliance, which we've you know, been hearing about recently, particularly in the case of the Mr. Nijar's murder, is that, mm-hmm. that we need this alliance and we need this collaboration uh, to work better against these targets. The British government judges that the explosion was likely caused by a missile or part of one that was launched from within Gaza towards Israel. The misreporting of this incident had a negative effect in the region, including on a vital US diplomatic effort and on tensions here at home. That was British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak today uh, discussing the assessment of British intelligence authorities about what happened with that explosion at a hospital in Gaza last week. Of course, the Americans had come out during Joe Biden's visit there last week saying exactly that. And over the weekend, uh, the Defence Minister Bill Blair came out and that was also Canada's assessment of the situation. that This was not Israel's doing. This was more likely or likely, very likely a rocket that had been fired from inside Gaza that landed at the hospital. The get death toll, again, Hamas had said around 500 at the time, um, and that has since been reassessed by U.S. intelligence authorities to be about between 100 and 300. The French also came out this weekend and came to the same conclusion. So all intelligence agencies appear to have reached the same conclusion when it comes to that incident. Uh, Dan, tell me a bit about, the, about what would be happening behind the scenes for Canada here, because I was interested to read over the weekend how much criticism there was of Canadian intelligence taking the time to do this when the Americans had already done it. And yet the French took their time and so did the Brits. So I was wondering, what do you think that says about, I, I wasn't sure what it said, actually. Well, I think, I, think, I think taking their time on this makes sense. I mean, that's really what should have happened initially, because we know, you know, um, Hamas immediately came out and said, well, it was Israel and 500 people were died. And I think it was the New York Times put that in. And in that, you know, this supercharged, um, angst-ridden environment, of course, and everyone reacted. But, I mean, I think, I think people's expectations are is we, we're going to get the news right away within seconds of something happening. And something, um, something as significant as this um, I think people do need to wait. We do need some time. We do need to do some verifications before people can pronounce who really did it. And so it does take time. Uh, You know, Canada's got a fair bit of resources they can pull on this with national defense, possibly CSE as well with signals intelligence, and then the French and then the others. So um, it, it, it is something that you need to be very careful about and precise. And so I'm not surprised it would take a while to, to get the final answer. 
I got the impression, though, that what was the problem that was happening in Canada, because I didn't see a lot of criticism domestically in France or in Britain about the time yeah. that it was taking. It felt like here it was the politicians, it was the, it was the government that were booting this. And, and, and all of a sudden the pressure then fell on the intelligence services to try and find an answer to this, that, that you know, find some sort of conclusion to this more quickly. Because, again, I wasn't seeing criticism in Britain, none at all, actually. No, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just the way it is in Canada. Everything's just so partisan now. And even even national security is politicized that as soon as it first comes out, well, it's it's Israel. And then, um, you know, what, what the prime minister had said and then when they're expecting retractions and things like that, like it seems like the whole focus becomes more on Canada and Canadian politicians and the media it's almost as though what's going on over in the Middle East is secondary. It sort of takes on a life of its own. Like, when is the prime minister going to retract? When is the minister of foreign affairs going to say this? And and uh, you know, whereas you know, we're we're kind of we're kind of removed from it. Um, yeah. So it's, it's kind of unfortunate. It just takes on a life of its own. A reminder, though, that in situations such as these, just how. Turbo, I mean, just how charged it all is. And, and the fact yeah. that when, when intelligence officials come out, I mean, I think the, the UK government came out very quickly and said, we're going to look at this. You know, keep yeah. in mind, Hamas is Hamas, but we're going to look at this and come to our own conclusions. And I think that was probably the right approach, whereas our approach was sort of to kind of right, right away, from the government at least, react to the news as if it were all true, and then try to backtrack and figure it out, which just seemed to be, you know, sort of dug a hole that they can't get out of. Yeah, which is, is unfortunate because, you know, Canada, or at least Canadian government should realize that, you know, intelligence is not precise. Um, and, and, and sometimes it can get very, it can be very complicated. And in some cases, you need to take your time. You may need make sure that the sources are reliable and do a proper assessment and corroborate things and, of course, collaborate as well with allies. So that's not something you're going to get an answer in a day. And the best response maybe is like the Brits. We're going to take our time and, and figure it out. Because you don't want to make these announcements and then make retractions. And people lose confidence. Yeah. And, th and this feels like with what's going on, I mean, all around the world right now, you have obviously the Five Eyes human intelligence chiefs talking about China. Uh, there's the, India, the, the issue with Canada and India that's, that's still underway and still ongoing. There's the situation in the Middle East, which is becoming more and more tense. Uh, this is a tough time for, for intelligence agencies. They, they have their work cut out for them. Yeah, they are. And those are the things we know publicly about. I mean, there's always all sorts of things going on, but it does seem there seems to be a lot of... Um, you know, very existential threat-related activities going on at the same time, and um, you know, the, the the public has a has a has a need to know really what's going on. Yeah. Um, I guess the circumstances when you, we look at the China one, I mean, it was it was it was no no surprise that China's denied everything that that the Five Eyes yeah. were talking about last week. But I yeah. suppose that's one of the reasons they've come out to say this is there is so much stuff going on out there that they wanted to focus people back on this China threat. Yes, they do. I mean, that, that's you know, that's always these are these are these state-driven threats. Whether it's China, whether it's Russia, they're not going to go away, and and uh, you know, they're fully entrenched. They're institutionalized. So I think that's part of the messaging. Is is you know, we've still got a lot of work to do here, and Russia as well. I know there were some comments made about Russian intelligence and you know, kicking them out and some attempted killings like at um, Salisbury, but. Right. Uh, you know, they're, they're, these these threats have always been there. They've been there consistently. Um, and we occasionally hear a little bit about it in the news. But I think that's part of the messaging 
is we're going to be in here for the long haul with these ones. Dan, as always, thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ben. Well, let's stay overseas ever so briefly now in the Middle East because I don't know if you remember back to 2006 when uh, Canada had to very suddenly evacuate a whole bunch of people from Lebanon. Uh, Rafiq Hariri, the, the, the prime minister, had been killed uh, about six months earlier. There was a war that began between Hezbollah and Israel. It, there was some damage to the airport. I mean, things really just started picked up very quickly. And a lot of people wanted out. And they only had a few thousand Canadians registered in, in Lebanon at the time and ended up with many, many, many more. It cost nearly $100 million. And there was an investigation into why there were so many people, who who's a citizen, who deserves to be evacuated in a situation like that. I mean, it was a big deal. So needless to say, uh, today, the last Canadian Armed Forces evacuation flight from Israel left. And now the government's kind of looking towards Lebanon, because there's a possibility that this war uh, in the Middle East may spread. And there's already been a back and forth between Hezbollah in southern Lebanon and uh, the Israeli Defense Forces. Um, Right now, there's about 16,500 Canadians who signed up. They've registered with the government in Lebanon to get out. That means there could be a huge number of people who need to leave if this situation should deteriorate quickly. And we're wondering, well, are we better prepared this time around? What lessons were learned from then? So who better to ask than the person who was the ambassador, Canadian ambassador to Lebanon at the time, Louis Delormier. Um, again, he was presided over the largest evacuation of Canadian citizens in history in 2006 called Operation Lion. He's now a fellow at the Montreal Institute of International Studies at UQAM in Montreal. And he joins me now. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This must be, I mean, just your assessment, I guess, I know it's sometimes it's difficult from afar, but as this whole conflict continues to rage on, your assessment of the situation in Lebanon now, because it feels like this conflict has every opportunity now or every possibility of spreading to Lebanon. Well, yes, I I can only give you an impression because um, as for um, most observers, we're not quite sure where all this is going. Um, I was of the opinion a few days ago that um, Hezbollah would would uh, be careful not not to go too far uh, and to get too completely involved in in this uh, this uh, Gaza crisis. But I'm starting. I'm really starting to wonder if that was a uh, if that was the proper uh, reasoning. Um, I, I think uh, knowing knowing Hezbollah for having lived in uh, Lebanon, my impression is that they're they're um, they want to get involved. Right, they, they're, te- they they're testing. Involved. They're testing. Right. I mean, they're, they're, they're waiting testing. to see if it's the right time. Right. Absolutely, and obviously, ultimately, they won't make the decision. We know where the decision will be made. That's in Iran, and. Uh, uh, but it might come quite quickly because the uh, uh, what's happening on the border is is getting pretty critical. And this may bring back uh, memories for you too of 2006, because uh, I mean the situation in Lebanon has changed since you were there. Even it's become an even more unstable place, as far as I can tell from afar. But there are many Canadians there, many Canadians who might be relying on this country to help them out if if things were to suddenly. Uh, escalate quickly uh, when when the um, situation erupted in in 2006 we had 6000 6000 Canadians on our books 
and one week later it was up to about 30,000 and and it probably went up to 50,000 it, it's it's a lot of people uh, so but i hear now they already have 30,000 on the books it's a different situation right now um as you know in tel aviv for example the airport never closed and commercial flights were available or or other flights uh, military flights uh, that wasn't the case in Beirut um, 17 years ago in 2006. So we had to um, to organize the uh, the evacuation by sea. Um, we we had to 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 find some some commercial ships because we didn't have the uh, military uh, uh, as, assets that other major countries have: the U.S., France, etc. So this time this time around. Uh, at least they're getting the, the the Canadians are getting prior notice. So the logic is that those that really want to leave, they should leave now, but they should leave on their on their own uh, at their own um, expense. And uh, how how will it evolve? Uh, will these if eventually the uh, the there's there's a direct implication by Hezbollah. Uh, the Israelis will the Israelis cripple the airport? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, that remains to be seen. Right now, it's not the case. The there were some some lessons learned. I gather. I mean, I remember the report that was done after the evacuation that you were involved in. Just because it was such a big evacuation, and it ended up costing nearly a hundred million dollars, there were some lessons learned. There also, I mean, you've you've repeated this advice to Canadians in war zones as well, and I think we saw a little bit of it in Israel uh, over the evacuations from Tel Aviv. It's hard for a government like Canada's to mobilize quickly in the in a time of emergency. Well, obviously, in 2006, uh, we we uh, it was totally unexpected, totally unexpected, <clears throat> and and even the statistics were were, you know, Ottawa was quite surprised having to ha having to um, to evacuate tens of thousands of of people, and it took a huge, huge, huge org organization to do that. About a hundred people came from Ottawa. To work uh, within the embassy to to organize all this, so um, it's different this time. At least there are lessons learned, and and uh, even the uh, the recent uh, evacuation that's that's finishing today, I, I hear uh, from from Israel, is is also part of the lessons learned. What I hear is that now we're evacuating people to Athens, for example, by plane, and then they're on their own. That's not what we were doing in 2006. In 2006, we would send them to Cyprus and then pick them up there and fly them all the way to Canada. It's different now, and it's the whole the whole debate also about this notion of dual nationality and whether right. and whether Canada is is. Um, it has has the obligation to 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 foot the bill uh, to to uh, to give uh, all this uh, assistance, the assistance surely, but should we be paying for the whole thing? Uh, that's that's the question. Right, you would know from your experience that it must sometimes be difficult to try and figure out if you're going to start saying, okay, well, this Canadian passport 
can can go and this one can't. That's a complicated issue, though. I mean, I, I obviously I understand what the concern is with dual nationals, but uh, but that can be tough, I imagine, on the ground in the moment as you experienced. Well, it's very difficult, and there 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 was a lot of uh, a lot of debate debate going on. The thing is, though, and nothing has changed here. Um, if you have a valid Canadian passport, you're a Canadian. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, but in 2006, we had lots of people that were coming with 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 old documents and stuff, and they couldn't even they couldn't even they couldn't even prove that they they were back back in Canada after getting their uh, their their full um, right. uh, citizenship. And so we were we were um, evacuating people to Canada that didn't know where they were going. Um, there's will there be less of that uh, this this time around and how how will we do it? Are we going to evacuate them to Cyprus and then tell them you're on your own? You you uh, you go uh, as as uh, we're doing with the people that are coming out of Tel Aviv. The situation is very different, and and you know the rule. There's no rule that says that that the Canadian government should should pick up the bill. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, all that's going on in the Middle East, of course, latest war between Israel and Hamas is continuing to expose fault lines in this country. We saw a lot of protests over the weekend. There was one that uh, targeted at one point, some of a protest in Toronto, pro-Palestinian one, targeted a Jewish-owned business, which, of course, was immediately decried today, including by the mayor of Toronto, Olivia Chow, although she did manage to talk about there's no place for anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, hate, intimidation, or harassment of any kind, when she might have been able to just say, in this case, it was anti-Semitism, but didn't. And today, Ontario NDP leader Marit Stein uh, removed rookie legislature Sarah Jama from the NDP caucus there after she had made comments to a similar effect, essentially talking about the situation uh, in the Middle East but without and the Palestinian situation, but without ever mentioning necessarily what had happened on October the 7th in southern Israel by Hamas. Here's what she had to say today. Governments and institutions in Canada are trying to use their voice to wait and wait to silence us, to silence workers, students, educators, and peace-loving people who dare to support Palestine. As I mentioned, Jemma's original statement on social media decried the generation's long occupation of Palestine without ever mentioning the attack by Hamas militants or Hamas terrorists, really, on Israeli uh, civilians. Uh, she was the MPP for Hamilton Center, or is, uh, and disability justice and youth critic for the official opposition. Joining me now is Lydia Milgen. She's a political science professor at the University of Windsor. Thank you. My pleasure. Nice to be here. This has been quite the ride for the NDP, for the Ontario NDP, and for Merritt Styles in particular. What do you make of the decision then to expel Sarah Jama from caucus? Well, I think it shows actually good leadership on the part of Ms. Styles. This was untenable for the party. I mean, there's a couple things here. I mean, clearly, Sarah Jama is ungovernable. I mean, she she apparently had an agreement to cooperate with the party, and she for some, and we don't know how she wasn't cooperating because it, was, it wasn't specific in the announcement today, but clearly she hasn't been playing by the rules that they had both agreed to. Um, Sarah Jama had apologized for her initial tweet. She never retracted it and in fact doubled down and, you know, put pinned it to her, her main page. And so that really puts the, the provincial NDP in a really tough spot. 
the moment she announced her candidacy, though, uh, I mean, Sarah Jama's views on these on this situation were pretty well known. Uh, was the mistake made off the bat or was this, do you think, just not a question of the opinions, but the question of when and how the opinions were being voiced? It's a tough position for the NDP because I think in general, they tend to be sympathetic with the Palestinian side. But at the same time, the events of October 7th were so horrific that you would expect that any decent human being would at the very least at the outset condemn that act, those acts of barbarism. But instead, there's a lot of people on the left, and Sarah Jama is just one, but we've also seen student unions, union leaders, essentially blaming Israel for the attacks on itself. And, and so it's really come to the fore, essentially, what their position has been all around. And they're not being inconsistent. It just shows that um, there's a real lack of humanity when it comes to this issue. Yeah, I mean, I've noticed already there was some pushback from within the NDP itself, the Ontario NDP, not least of not which from uh, from Fred Hahn, the head of CUPE Ontario, who's already himself had to apologize for things that he'd been he'd put on social media in the immediate aftermath of that attack in southern Israel back on the 7th. The NDP, I mean, again, you, you point out they're in a difficult situation here because within the party, there's a there's a difference of opinion. What, what struck me as being a bit odd, though, is, is their inability to recognize the horror of what happened before pushing forward with their ideas of what the future of the Middle East should look like. Yeah, that's the problem. I mean, you mentioned Fred Hahn. I mean, he he too, he he doubled down. He he apologized for the timing. I think you see he apologized for the timing of his statements, but again, didn't retract them. The timing or the yeah. You know, or the no. content. He didn't yeah. so none of them are, are are rejecting their content. I mean, it's one thing for, for people not to know the details and make intemperate remarks, but once you know the details and the horrific nature of the violence. I would hope that you'd be able to step back, but they haven't been able to do that. So these are now very entrenched views. And it really seems to me that it's, it's, it's essentially blowing up both the Liberal and the NDP parties at the provincial and at the federal level. And so it'll be it, it's, it's, it's going to be something to watch to see how they navigate this, because these are now divided caucuses on some fundamental human rights issues. Yeah, I'm, we saw protests over the weekend, of course, I, I suppose, most notably one in Toronto that, in fact, uh, were some protesters, I should say, not all of them, targeted a uh, Jewish owned business in Toronto. It feels like this is starting starting to head in areas that are very divisive and very uncomfortable and, and, and have to be called out. I think we believe in people's right to be able to voice their opinions on these issues. At the same time, the lack of ability to recognize the situation we're in right now seems seems very, very tone deaf, at least, and, and incredibly harmful at worst. I agree. I mean, I happened to be in Toronto on Saturday, and I saw sort of the aftermath of the protest as I was walking through Union Station. And I'm not Jewish, um, but I felt intimidated because just the volume of people and the fact that they had very large signs with very big sticks, and you know, there was a sense of jubilation in the room. I mean, people were fine. Nobody attacked anybody where I was. But I thought, boy, if I were Jewish, I would be so afraid to walk these streets because, you know, there is a mob and and they are very politicized and they're so entrenched in their points of view that, that you know, there, there's and there's so much misinformation about what happened and, and denial that I think it's it must be completely terrifying to be in any Western country right now where these kinds of protests are happening if you happen to be Jewish. 
So where to from here? I mean, it feels like this is, again, um, as you mentioned earlier, this is creating some some tough questions in a specific party caucuses as well, whether it be the Ontario NDP. Uh, we've seen it with the federal liberals as well. Uh, where do you think this goes from here? Because it feels like you can't just make it go away. People have opinions and, and clearly people are entitled to opinions. But somehow we have to be able to have conversations about this very complicated and incredibly comp- you know, longstanding and complex issue without just screaming past each other or denying each other the ability to share opinions. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the issue. You know, how do we have conversations and, and not be afraid of what we're saying or how people are going to take it? And and I think, you know, we're going to have to see what happens, what unfolds over the next few weeks. But ultimately, there really is a need for the leaders of these organizations to make definitive statements. You know, and I think that initially we had some of that from the federal liberals, but they've They've kind of walked it back insofar as they, you know, they made some major missteps last week with the allegations about the bombing of the hospital. They've never retracted their statements. And so that leaves the door open, sort of the vacuum for the dissent to come up. And then you have that open letter by MPs. So, you know, I would hope that the political parties themselves would figure out where they stand on it and then, um, you know, live or die by their statements. That's mm-hmm. essentially what we need to know. We need to know where the parties stand um, and they can't be wishy-washy about this because the the onus is on the leadership to make sure that their political parties don't self-destruct under this. Because, you know, if I'm, if, if you're a liberal supporter, you're going to be really afraid about the next federal election as the NDP are, because it's, it seems to me that the only, National Federal Party that has been consistent in its message of, of you know, condemnation for Hamas has actually been the Conservatives. And so, you know, given that, you know, the latest poll projections are putting the Conservatives at a, a ridiculously high approval rating, I think the last projection was like 204 seat majority government, that could only get bigger yeah. if the Liberals don't get their house in order. Well, Lydia, thank you so much. My pleasure. Nice speaking with you, Ben. Let's uh, talk about hockey. Well, not hockey in in an indirect way uh, this half hour. Uh, Before this NHL season, the league announced that players were no longer allowed to use something called pride tape in games, warm-ups, or even practices. It's exactly as you can picture it, sports tape in the rainbow colors of the pride flag. It had been used around the league since 2016 as a symbol of support of the LGBTQ community. Well, this past weekend, one NHLer decided to defy that ban. Arizona Coyotes defenseman Travis Dermott became the first NHL player to use pride tape during the team's home opener against Anaheim on Saturday night. His team won. Now, Dermott is no superstar in the league. He's played around. He's been in Vancouver and Toronto and uh, Arizona, amongst others. But he's also been a longtime and consistent supporter of LGBTQ rights. So, so much so that he actually ordered more pride tape from its Edmonton manufacturer right after the ban was announced. Me, um... Now, Dermot's use of the rainbow hockey tape over the weekend is under review by the league. He could potentially face punishment. I don't think so, though. Uh, Still, will other players follow suit? Will they follow his example? Uh, Chris Wells is one of the co-founders of Pride Tape, and he joins me now from Edmonton. Chris, thanks so much. Yeah, it's great chatting with you. So this was, I mean, I think the assumption was just reading all the coverage of it over the past few weeks that someone, one player was going to do this. One player was going to go ahead. Um, and this one didn't come as a huge surprise to you, did it? No, um, Travis had actually reached out to the Pride Tape team as soon as uh, the NHL had announced its ban saying, hey, I need more tape. And um, we were happy to uh, send it to him. We didn't necessarily know uh, 
when he was going to use it, but he's been such a, a long-standing and committed ally, regardless of uh, the teams that he's played on, uh, Vancouver Canucks, Toronto Maple Leafs. He's always used pride tape, and he's one of the few players that actually uses it uh, all season long uh, up uh, near uh, the top of his stick. Well, what did it mean to see it on his on, in that familiar spot, by the way, uh, over the weekend? Oh, it was it was amazing, right? We we had heard uh, several NHL players were uh, not happy with the ban and and were were thinking about using pride tape. So to see Travis be uh, the first one just really reemphasizes uh, what a true ally looks like. Like, you know, this isn't Sidney Crosby or Connor McDavid who are the superstars who are almost untouchable in the league. This is a guy with a two way contract that uh, has a lot uh, to risk, but. Um, you know, that's what true allies do. They don't back down, they double down their support. And so uh, I think all around the world, we've been hearing what many people are saying, uh, Travis is a, is a hero to them. They're out now trying to scramble to buy his jersey to uh, yeah. show their support. I, I saw many people saying, I'll buy a jersey for the first player that of the team for the first player who does this. So I guess in some ways, uh, the Phoenix Coyotes have also benefited from from this act. I mean, I will call it an act of defiance, I guess, because that's what it is, given the NHL rules. But uh, but you're right. I hadn't thought about the fact that a player in his position is risking more than someone who's in a far more high profile position. Yeah, we I actually call it an act of allyship because, you know, that's what allies do. Real mm-hmm. allies when it, when the going gets tough, right? They 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 don't back down. They they double down. They stand beside what is very important uh to them. Some people call this political, mm-hmm. but for people like like Travis and so many others, it's personal. And uh recognizing that as a professional athlete in this world, you have tremendous privilege and you have a platform unlike uh any other. And so it it means a lot for somebody who's really willing to stand uh, out in a sport that is all about, right, conformity, not standing out above the rest of your teammates. And um, this is is really uh, commendable and really brave. Tell me a bit about the origins of, for listeners who don't know, a bit about the origins of Pride Tape, where the idea came from and, and how far spread it is now. Well, Pride Tape uh, started seven years ago uh, here in in Edmonton, and it really came out of this uh, research question that we had. Why are young gay and bisexual boys dropping out of organized team sports like hockey at much earlier ages than their heterosexual peers? And a lot of that is because of the, the toxicity of the locker room, the homophobic language or the hazing or the bullying that uh, they've experienced that they either drop out or they're pushed out or or they're forced out of the game that they love. And so Pride Tape was really designed as as a badge of support, right, from the hockey world to these young players to say, we see you, we believe in you. And really, uh, the power of Pride Tape is, is not actually in wrapping your stick, Right. That that shows that you're an ally without having to say any words. But the real power is in the conversation that it engenders, that it makes possible. Um, That is really what can lead to the kind of cultural change that's still needed in in hockey in particular. How did you land on on tape? Because, I mean, we've all played we've all played sports. Right. So, I mean, most of us have played sports. If you have, you know, where what what a place, what a a routine tape is. It's a weird thing. Once you're out of it, you forget it for a bit. Yeah, it's such a big deal. It's such a big deal. It's totally such a a weird thing. And so, 
you know, we had been working previously with uh, Andrew Ferentz, who was the captain of the Edmonton Oilers. Right. And he, uh, you know, he, we, he came and marched in the pride parade, uh, you know, alongside some of our young people and became the, actually the first team captain of any professional sport in North America to march in a pride parade in Edmonton. And again, he knew what it was to be an ally and he knew he had a platform and he wanted to amplify the voices of these young people. So that was in 2014. So when we were looking at hockey, we, we went back to Andrew and, you know, our, our brilliant creative team with uh, uh, Jeff McLean, who came up with the concept of Pride Tape. Um, first thing we did was run to the hockey rule book, right? Because they control right. everything from, you know, your helmet to the size of your pads, or your equipment, what you can wear. And we found almost a loophole, right? There was no real rule about tape. And just that it, it could be any color and it could be anywhere on the player's stick. Um, in fact, you know, when we went to the NHL, um, when when we we landed on the idea of pride tape, they said to us, how the hell did you find the one thing on the player we don't control? So, you know, it was sort of funny, but Andrew warned us early on. He said, right, like guys are, are really superstitious around, right, their tape and their sticks. And so don't expect everybody to use it. And that was really an important message from the right. very beginning, because success wasn't going to be everybody using it. Success was, um, you know, having the the players who uh, knew uh, what Pride Tape was use it, right? Like, we didn't want fake allies or false allies. We never wanted it to be mandatory. We wanted to know that when somebody took that intention of taping their stick, they were going to stand behind the message because it was too powerful uh, for that young person to to be able to be in a position of doubt, wondering, is it going to be safe? Is this person going to be supportive? I see this, you know, rainbow tape. Um, we wanted them to know that there would be people who care about them in the game that they loved. What was the reaction when they put the ban in place? I mean, you mentioned already that they're very, you know, they they do, you know, they police this quite seriously and you'd found that loophole on the tape, but it must've been disappointing when they came in and said, listen, well, not, we can't do, we won't allow this this season. It was really disappointing. It was almost like a gut punch uh, because we had actually worked very closely with the NHL for the past seven years. Um, uh, in fact, where they would often order tape and send it out to the teams to be able to use it. And so they were very much a, a partner with Pride Tape. And, and, you know, Pride Tape is not this big company. It's just this, we're a small grassroots a collective. In fact, we sell the, the tape, uh, get shipped out of uh, somebody's garage, right? right? And, and so over the past week, I don't even think they've they've slept trying to keep up to all the orders that have come in from all over uh, North America for uh, Pride Tape. But it, it was so disappointing on so many levels because, you know, the jerseys were the first thing in canceling the special cause nights, which were really important to community members and groups and 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 players to support the things that they really care about. Uh, and then, right, the tape that was always completely optional. Nobody ever forced a player. It was only ever really, you know, used discreetly um, and often just in in warm warm ups around pr special pride nights. And and many of those sticks were then uh, auctioned off to support local LGBTQ charities. And you know that the few thousand dollars uh, at uh, you know in all of those those rinks went a long way to supporting right really grassroots important uh, causes. So. It was disheartening. It was uh, disappointing, but we were not at all surprised by the overwhelming backlash to the NHL because maybe what the, the NHL thought that they were just banning some tape, but we always knew it was about much more than tape. This is about a really important human rights movement.
are were they are they because I know it's used elsewhere. Maybe you can explain how many different leagues. Because I think I think I've seen it in in all kinds of sports now that use tape, obviously. Um, but was the NHL the first league to to ban it? Yeah, the only league to ban the only, it. Oh, the only league, rather. What, yeah. what we know, in fact, what was because it started with uh, the uh, the NHL, and and we started in partnership with the Edmonton Oilers. We're the first team to uh, you know bring Pride Tape to the world. In fact, one of those very first Pride Tape hockey sticks uh, from seven years ago sits in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Um, You know, that's how important the message has always been in the sport that has not always been open and inclusive or, you know, safe for for many different uh, minorities. So, uh, you know, it started there in Edmonton and and it went on to be used by all 32 teams in the National Hockey League, but is now used in many other uh, sports at all levels from uh, baseball, softball, you know, even uh, lacrosse, uh, dodgeball, the World Dodgeball Championships, they use uh, pride tape. And we see pride tape not just in sports, but people will use it on their their bikes and their water bottles in physiotherapy clinics and their gardening tools on their wheelchairs and their walkers and their their canes. Right. It has just become this very simple yet powerful way to say, hey, uh, I'm an ally or I identify as part of the community. Uh, I'm a safe person to talk to. What would you like to see happen now? Because I, I get the impression uh, that Travis Durbin is not going to pay. There won't be a price to pay. And I think a lot of players already assume this. They said, listen, the NHL can say this, but we can use the tape and they're not going to fine us for it because it would look so bad. Um, what would you like to see happen now that this first act of allyship or defiance has been uh, has been perpetrated, so to speak? I don't know if that's the right verb, but uh, you know that that this has happened with in Arizona with Travis Durbin. Yeah, I really, you know, what we see is allyship in action, right? The, the words are the easy part. It's actually the actions that are hard and have the most meaning and impact. So we we hope it'll open the floodgates of uh, other players have already publicly said that they they plan to use Pride Tape. Hopefully they will will join in solidarity of Travis. Uh, I know the, the Coyotes uh, later this week have their first uh, Pride Night, the first in the NHL. So you know, it'd be really interesting to watch that game and see if other players, even on the Coyotes or the, you know, the opposing team, the LA Kings uh, decide now is the time to also show their solidarity uh, with one of their own, one of their own players um, to to use pride tape, because imagine what would happen if the uh, NHL actually decided to issue a fine against the player or the team, right? There would be a firestorm. They think they already have seen controversy, just uh, there would be, um, you know, a, a massive eruption against the NHL, one that I don't actually know that they could recover from. Chris, thank you so much. Absolutely. Real pleasure. And uh, I don't think we've heard uh, the, the last of uh, Pride Tape and the NHL. So uh, stay tuned out there. Yeah, let's talk revenge this half hour. I mean, you know, I was trying to think of movies where revenge is the plot. It's actually hard to think of too many movies where revenge isn't in the, isn't in the plot, right? It's been the basis of, you know, everything from The Unforgiven. I was watching a clip from that earlier to Hamlet, The Count of Monte Cristo, a ton of more modern stories. In fact, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is so old, it goes back to Mesopotamian culture. Before the Greeks, the Romans, the Bible, you name it, uh, part of Hammurabi's code, 282 laws inscribed on a stone pillar it was much more. It was it was found in 1901 in a site that's now in what's Iran, um, and and it really you know it sort of spelled out the idea of an eye for an eye. It was very there was much more to it, but we'll we'll leave it at that. It's, uh, simple enough. 
There are many other terms we use, right? Revenge is sweet. Revenge is a dish best served cold. Uh, And that all brings me to this story that you may have seen over the past couple of days. It was posted on social media by a Texas entrepreneur named Linda Solly Hurd. In two videos, she explains how years ago she was at an event with a close friend. They were young. And the friend accidentally tipped her chair, hitting the table behind them, causing a guy to spill a drink on himself. He then calls the friend a bunch of unpleasant pleasant names and spits on her. Linda then confronts him, and he insults her too. So she decides, you know what? No way. I'm getting even. Have a listen to what she does first. So the next day I find this guy on Facebook, just, you know, you can find anyone, and see that he's obsessed with Walking Dead and Breaking Bad. And this was back when the shows were airing and you'd get one a week and you would do anything to avoid a spoiler. So I go search for all the spoilers. I get on Reddit. I get on all the forums, everything, and find spoilers for all the upcoming episodes. And I make a couple fake Facebook accounts and would message him spoilers on a weekly basis. And he would make these rage-filled Facebook statuses and tweets like, who is sending me this and block him? And I just pop back up and send him another one. It was so much fun. There you go. So that sounds pretty harmless, right? She spots him again over the years, including in university. They actually share a class together. Uh, And this goes off and on for a while. She sort of stops and starts and stops and starts, but it continues until she spots again on social media that he happens to be engaged to a friend of a friend of hers and posting some strange stuff, I guess, stuff that you wouldn't want the fiance to find out about on Reddit about their relationship. So needless to say, she does this. I see some pretty sinister stuff on his Reddit and there are pictures that he is passing off as her and things like that, like really sinister stuff that if it was your partner, you would want to know. So I jump on one of those old like Facebook accounts, reset the password, get access to it and send her all of the, like send her the username. And it was like, Hey, like you should check this out. And she's thanking this random dog groomer account uh, person profusely and she breaks off the engagement. Right. Uh, so that is, that's a little more serious, isn't it? But again, you know, revenge, revenge best served often, it turns out. Nancy Kayser Boyd is a clinical and forensic psychologist in LA, and she joins me now to talk revenge. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, you're welcome. That is quite the story. I mean, I think people have been, needless to say, because there's sort of a humorous side to it with the spoilers on the TV shows, and then a bit more a bit more <laughs> vicious side to it, breaking up the engagement. Um, people have been talking a lot about this person's activities and whether this is sort of haha or wait a second you know what are you up to what do you make of it all well i guess as a woman it's in a way it's nice to see a woman protecting another woman or other women her friend and then the prospective um uh, wife um but but she went to an awful lot of effort and we have to wonder what what's in it for her um, is it just altruistic, or is she is she sort of working out some anger that she has at someone in her life? Yeah, because you point out a really interesting point. We have a very complicated relationship with revenge, don't we? We do. Yes, we do. And as you pointed out in your introduction, um, really revenge has been around since the beginning of man, and and often it, its purpose was to warn potential aggressors what the cost might be of, of an, a violent act toward their group. Right. So just really a deterrent more than anything else. Yes. Originally, I think. Not yeah. so much in society. No, not so much these days. What What is going on, from your perspective as a psychologist, what is going on then in, in sort of 
with our emotions and our brain? What's happening to us? Uh, and what, what triggers that desire for revenge? And then what's happening in our brain that we can't kind of shake it? Well, of course, many people can shake it. Um, the research on revenge indicates that people who are more inclined to seek revenge are more, um, more into power. Um, it, it is a strategy that, that helps the person equalize the power once they feel helpless. Um, it's often in response to narcissistic injury or personal humiliation. And in, in some cases, it's a response to shame. So, um, you know, it, 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 can't, it, it can't be explained the same way for everyone who engages in revenge, but those are some of the, the published reasons for revenge. Yeah, you wrote about this, I know, or you've talked about this in the past. What are the, I mean, I suppose we could look first at what are some of the, I, 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 I struggle to use the word upside, but what are some of the upsides of revenge? Well, let's start with catharsis. Um, the psychological literature has talked about catharsis, that some people feel that if, if they've been wronged and they're angry or they have a strong emotion, that if they seek revenge, they will feel better. Um, and the research actually indicates that that's not actually true. Um, often what happens is the person gets tied up with the emotion and it causes it to last longer. Right. So that would, again, that would be the downside, right? And you pointed that out even in this case, despite the fact that the, the whole idea about giving away spoilers for TV shows is pretty funny in of itself. That's an awful lot of time. I mean, you're, you're, you're spending an awful lot of time on somebody you purport not to want to think about or care about. Yes, yes, a lot of time. And also not thinking about the consequences. I mean, the, these days, at least in the States, we hear a lot about defamation. Um, if you say something in public about somebody, they can sue you, also for libel or slander. Um, or they, one of the other downsides of revenge is it can start a cycle of revenge. So um, person A does something to person B, person B does something back or to something, someone related to person A. So it, it can be dangerous in that way, and often people don't think about that. Right. The idea of the feud, right? We think of the Hatfield, the Hatfields and the McCoys or any number of, of examples of feuding is always kind of based on that idea of that, that never-ending vicious cycle of an eye for an eye. Yes, we see that a lot on the American streets with gang violence. Mm. Yes. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that about some of the, the the downsides of it, and and I think we've talked about it a bit. But but just from the literature and from you know in psychology in general, in general, what are the downsides of revenge itself? Because uh, I don't imagine it's I don't imagine often it's it's as sweet as we say it is. Yes, that that is what the literature says. It says that um, often people are too caught up for too long a time with getting back. Um, and so it prolongs the negative feelings. They've compared people that um, plotted revenge versus those who didn't. And, of course, this was not um, – it was more of, a, of an experimental design with college students. But the, the people who were able to move on were happier than those who plotted revenge. Right. Turning the other cheek, so to speak, right, which is uh, – again, there's a lot of pressure out there. I mean, what's funny when you think about – and I suppose this goes back uh, to a lot of what's in literature and song and so on. Uh, revenge lives in, in a lot of our popular culture as a way of working things out. And yet, uh, and turning the cheek, at least in the past, 
could have been seen as something negative, right? I mean, that's part of the issue here is it's been kind of promoted over the years as a way of, you know, ultimately you can't let someone slight you therefore, right? Right, right. I mean, there have been psychologists who've done research on those who more are more inclined to seek revenge. And what they found is they're more inclined to have authoritarian personalities as opposed to being more inclined to forgive or to be benevolent. Um, right. Yeah, and we, and we also, in, in the States, we also see sort of institutionalized revenge with the death penalty. Um, I don't know how much Canadians follow trials in, in the United States, but there's a piece in the sentencing where the victims get to speak, and they also can attend an execution. Now, I'm in California. We don't have executions. It's the death penalty is on stay. But people would actually go to San Quentin and watch the execution. Right, Nancy. One of the things that I that I, I imagine the whole notion of revenge is best a dish best served cold. Perhaps means that it's better to th- stop and think about it for a while to sort of use that cool down period. Uh, that sort of there's there's a there's a, some advice hidden in that age old saying as well. Yes, yes, I think so. I mean, there are certain things to think about before engaging in um, uh, avenging some wrongdoing. I think the first thing is perhaps a moral question. Is this the right thing to do? Um, And the second would be, is this actually going to harm me? Am I going to pay a price for doing this? Will I get caught? Will this person strike back against me? Will I be arrested? Uh, we had a fascinating case in California where two lawyers, uh, of parents of a child who wasn't treated well in school, went out of their way to get the teacher fired, and they ended up being charged with crimes. Um, so is, is, is it a risk to you to, to strike back in an, in, an, in an aggressive or hurtful way? And then, um, you know, often... Um, there are laws that protect people that have been wronged. Um, you know, there are laws against stalking these days and, and uh, against bench porn and a lot of other things didn't used to be against the law, at least in the U.S. And you could always tell yourself that the justice system will take care of it. Or finally, you might just tell yourself karma will take care of it. That people yeah. that are like this gentleman that she... Um, uh, try to avenge. Um, we'll get his come up and at some point. Yeah, what goes around comes around, right? That's the other. There's so many. There's so many of what, so many cliches that we could talk about that that relate to this. Of course, you spend time in courtrooms. You must see an awful lot of revenge gone wrong in your job. I do. I do. In fact, I, I noticed a statistic recently that about twenty percent of homicides in America are revenge motivated. Wow. So, so we can see just how powerful an emotion it can be, right? Right, yeah. What, what are some of the best ways, then, to talk yourself down? Because I think, as you've pointed out, a lot of it happens very much in the heat of the moment, this idea, this sort of overpowering desire for vengeance that then takes away your ability or doesn't take away, but sort of clouds your ability to judge right from wrong or to make rational decisions about your own future. Uh, you know, a lifetime in prison is a long time to think about taking revenge on something, right? That's, uh, it just seems like it clouds our judgment so much. How do you uncloud it, do you think? Well, psychologists are big fans of talking. 
So talk to somebody about how angry you are or how hurt you were. Um, that could be a therapist or it could be a trusted friend. could be a priest. It could be somebody that's a good listener and can, can help you calm down. Um, I think then um, pausing and, and, you know, not acting impulsively would be a really important thing to do because impulsive actions are almost always very unwise. And then think about other ways that, that this person that you might um, do what you need to do with this person to get them to understand that their behavior was wrong, filing a police report, um, doing something constructive like that to let the justice system take care of it. Yeah. You, you were saying, obviously, in that example you pointed out of the two lawyers who were upset about the way their child was being treated by a teacher, no one is immune from this, right? Which is, I think, even more the more fascinating thing about revenge is that it crosses almost you could sit down with someone from any part of the world, from any socioeconomic background, from any religious background, from any age, and say, tell me about revenge, and they would know exactly what you were talking about. It's sort of a universal human condition. It is, but overt acts of revenge tend to be more prevalent in societies where there isn't a good justice system. Right. Yes, I suppose if you can't, if you know for a fact that there will never be justice, that in, that encourages you, sort of the whole idea of vigilantism and so on. Yes. Yeah, I speak another thing that is hugely that is hugely lionized in movies and so on, but you know, is is, is really a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. Yes, yes, and it. I I feel. I mean, you know, I'm in the middle of Los Angeles, where we have an awful lot of violence, young people don't have the ability to delay the act, so to speak. So there are a lot of shootings here that are gang-related that are revenge, and very young people engage in those and don't really have the cognitive capacity yet to sort of think that through. Right. So I see, I get, I suppose to wrap it all up. I mean, this has just been an interesting, this TikTok video, I think because it was the, the beginning seemed, you know, spoiling TV shows seems quite, quite harmless, right? Ultimately, but it did raise a lot of good questions about why we feel the need to take revenge and why you would spend so much time investing in, in somebody that you don't really, that you don't really want to care about. I mean, I suppose it's, there's a certain obsessiveness to it. Yes, there is, and I, I rather suspect that this uh, young woman had an event that was that personally harmed her, and not just her friend or the prospective wife that that propelled her to act this way. Yeah, there's always more. There's always more to meets the eye in these ones. I gather. I think so. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, listen, uh, Nancy, thank you so much for taking us through this. It's, I was really curious to know about the psychology of it. I suppose if you boil it all down to brass tacks, it's just best not served at all, really. Like, you know, it's not best served cold and it's not sweet. It's probably just best to figure out some other way. Absolutely. There you are. Nancy Kayser Boyd, uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. You're welcome. <laughs> Let you turn things on or off from anywhere in the room. Just plug in the clapper and a television, lamp, stereo, almost anything you want to clap on and off. Clap on, clap off, clap on, clap off. The, the clapper. The clapper is now available at all Hills department stores, Phase Drugs, and Wegman food pharmacies. 
those old commercials from back in the day, right? The Clapper. You remember the Clapper commercial? Of course, there's the, it ends with a, with an older woman in bed, and she's, her TV's on. She doesn't have to get up. She just claps. It turns off. Uh, so that when you talk about sort of technology that helps people out, that's the one that always pops to mind. Of course, that is so antiquated now. Uh, I wonder if they still sell them. Uh, but it won't come to news as you, of course, that to you, that Canada's population is aging and that aging – the aging population is living longer than it used to. In 2010, 14% of this country was 65 or older. That number has reached 19% or did in 2022. By the end of the decade, 22.5%. That's nearly 10 million people, if you do the math. And the population aged 85 and older is one of the fastest growing age groups here with a 12% increase from 2016. And that brings us to the inevitable issues associated with aging, such as mobility and cognitive issues, such as Alzheimer's and so on. New technologies, though, can offer a bit of a helping hands sometimes quite literally there are devices out there that you know that uh, set up services such as non-intrusive health monitoring technology medication and daily life management services for people living with dementia smart home sensors that are created to identify potentially risky situations in the kitchen and signal people to take corrective actions for, for, for so on and so on there's a lot going on out there that can sort of smart up what what is happening around you and it doesn't only help those who are aging or those who have these issues it also helps their care givers, right? And it's big business, needless to say, almost 70% of seniors say they're willing to pay for technology that allows them to stay at home as they age. It'll also be uh, front and center, all this stuff at the Age Tech Conference, which opens in Toronto tomorrow. Alex Mihalidis uh, will be there. He's CEO of AgeWell. He's also a professor in the Department of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy at the University of Toronto, and he joins me now. Alex, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. This is re a really interesting topic because we've been talking about an aging population and the impact that's going to have and is having. Uh, people are living longer, more people are living longer. Um, but technology can really, I mean, that poses a lot of challenges that technology can help answer. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing that we're all living longer. Um, it's obviously testament to, you know, things that we're all doing well, but uh, some of us live longer, but not with the quality of life that we want. And that's really where technology support to older adults to remain in their own homes and communities come into play. There's lots of examples of stuff out there. I mean, anytime someone talks about uh, technology, and, and I always think of the clapper, which is ridiculous because it's 30 years old, right? But that's sort of <laughs> that's sort of where my brain goes as the origin yeah. point, right? But I mean, uh, what, what kind of stuff is being developed now? Obviously, you know, legions, worlds away from that. <laughs> uh, well, you'd be surprised how close some things still are to the clapper. It's just, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're, they're more intelligent. But, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of things such as smart home systems that are being developed that use sensors uh, placed throughout the environment that collect information about uh, a person's activity levels and what activities are actually completing. And then, um, you know, a, a lot of research being done on how to use that data and things like artificial intelligence to uh, learn about patterns of living about these individuals and then actually to predict changes in their health. Uh, so for example, predicting, you know, a decline in someone's cognition, uh, which may be leading to something like, like dementia or Alzheimer's disease. Um, there's a lot of work being done on systems for people with dementia to help them remain in the homes by giving them prompts and reminders of the things they need to do, whether it's take their medication attend appointments or more complex things such as activities of daily living, you know, using the bathroom, uh, washing their hands, preparing a simple meal. Um, so, you know, there, there's a variety of technologies that are out there that can really help across the entire spectrum 
right from, you know, quote unquote, uh, healthy older adults to those who may be uh, having some kind of impairment or disability. And I suppose this is a big help, not just to the individual, but also to all those around them who are responsible for their care, too. Yeah, absolutely. The family caregivers are a critical piece now of what we're doing with respect to technology development and implementation, because, you know, often it's the family members who are actually purchasing these technologies and installing them and maintaining them and, and receiving the data from them. And, you know, personally, you know, my, my mother has early stage dementia. My father is quite frail. You know, I have smart home systems in their house and I receive those alerts and, and act upon them. So the family caregiver really is becoming uh, much more in the center of the design process uh, than ever before. How does that work? I mean, you, I know you have personal experience both with your parents. You also had a fall, right? So you sort of had a chance yes. to to understand what immobility might be like, or at least what some of this technology can do for you. I, I guess some, a lot of the inspiration for these things can come directly from personal experience. It would make sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I would say, you know, 99% of the students who walk through my door who want to do research in this area all come from personal experience, whether it's a grandparent whether it's their parents, whether it's someone else they know, they all have stories to tell. And and that's really, I think, the, the exciting part about this. It's, you know, the work is being done by people who are passionate, not just about, you know, the academic exercise or the research, but the solutions that we can come up with. When you look at, um, I mean, one of the things, of course, is, is equity, right? Because not all seniors are, not, not all people who are living longer are living longer with the same degree of, of, of financial mobility or financial, yes. uh, and, and that's that's a big deal because technology can be expensive. And I guess you don't want to create different tiers of, of older people. I mean, we already do in many senses, but mm-hmm. making this technology accessible must be a big priority as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, equity is critical in what we do. And so we work towards developing solutions that you know can be as affordable as possible. We work with the provinces and healthcare systems in terms of how to deliver these technologies without any cost. We do a lot of work with uh, indigenous leaders and indigenous communities to understand um, not just you know the, the, the economic aspect, but the cultural aspect of these technologies as well. And that's so important in a country like Canada, which is obviously so multicultural um, and you know, it's amazing how much culture can actually impact how we develop these technologies. Yeah, I, I suppose I suppose in many ways they need to be, especially if, if, if you're talking about sort of early stage dimension and so on, you, you need things that people can understand how to use as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 as, yeah, if, you've, if the accessibility of it goes far beyond just the, the cost, obviously. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, we want these technologies to be as easy as possible. And we often refer to them as being zero effort. You install them. You turn them on, they work for you. And um, they work in the right way. They adapt to your needs automatically without, uh, you know, someone having to come in there and fidget and constantly change different parameters or turn different knobs on the device. You know, so that's our ultimate goal, that the technology is there and it's working for us. I mean, with your experience in this too, I imagine there's only, like like everything, there's only so far the technology can go, right? You still need that, you know, this idea somehow that that people will be sort of taken care of completely by technology is is probably not where we're headed with this either. Not where we would want to head with this. Well, exactly, Ben, you're right. You know, we don't want to replace uh, family caregivers. You know, technology is one tool among many uh, that uh, caregivers, uh, family doctors, 
nurses, whoever it may be, can use. And really, you know, the goal of the technology we're developing is, is really just to raise that alert um, and then to, to ensure that the caregivers know what's happening and so that they can make the best decision possible on the type of inter- intervention. Alex Mihalidis is with us. He's the CEO of AgeWell. He's also a professor in the Department of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy uh, at uh, the Kite Research Institute at the University of Toronto. Uh, Alex, when one looks at this, uh, I mean, it's obviously an area where there's a lot of potential for growth, I have no doubt, and, and continued growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we getting the, the kind of R&D and support that, you, that we need, in this country at least, to foster that kind of growth? Um, we are, you know, private industry has really um, been attracted to this area. And, you know, you look at the age wall network and, you know, we have over 400 partners from private industry, public, uh, not-for-profits, et cetera. And, and, you know, they're all realizing, obviously, the demographic change. Uh, many of the companies are realizing the demographic change within their employees. Um, they're also realizing many of their employees are becoming caregivers. And so there's a lot of interest in, in how technology can be developed, but also can be used, um, you know, within their own companies and among their employees. So, um, you know, the support is there. The universities are generating outstanding research in this area. Um, and I would say over the past decade, um, you know, because of AgeWell and all the researchers involved, Canada has truly become a leader in the R&D in this area. Yeah, and and also, I mean, the, the way that it's been, uh, the way we've seen the development of it. You've even mentioned, I think, in uh, something I was reading, that there've just been so many more, even journal articles about this this field in the last mm-hmm. decade. That there's sort of been a real I, this this sudden realization, perhaps, that this could be a real game changer for a lot of caregivers and a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, when you look at the number of publications, you know, it's kind of been a, this exponential rise over the past several years. Uh, some of that, obviously, because of the pandemic and the need for technology. Uh, but Ben, the one thing I will say is, even though you know we have seen this uh, dramatic increase in academic performance and output, uh, we still have a problem translating a lot of these technologies to market, and right. that is actually where Canada is lagging behind the rest of the world. How is that, or why is that? Um, honestly, it, it's a lack of funding, uh, lack of funding from uh, all levels of government, lack of private investment. You know, we're not like the United States where there's uh, a lot of venture capital. And so uh, AgeWell and our partners were really trying hard to set up private investment uh, funds to support our startups. Um, and we really need to work closer with our government and our, our provinces and the territories to uh, put the funding and the programs in place that allow these technologies to make them into the homes of the people that need them. Right, because the way you, you put it, if I get you right, I mean, the, the, the growth potential is there. It just needs the proper, it needs to be watered, essentially. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, there's been huge growth in this area from an academic and research perspective. And, and we're kind of at this tipping point right now where, you know, we can get the right support and uh, the market will be flooded by great solutions or we're going to, you know, fall backwards, which obviously... We don't want an age while fighting hard for it not to happen that way. Right. A, a big conference coming up Tuesday, the Age Tech Conference in Toronto. I imagine this is going to be one of the things above and beyond just sort of talking about the technology. This will be one of the things that will be on the that will be on people's minds as well. Yeah, absolutely. So next week, uh, Tuesday to uh, uh, to Friday, we have the Age Tech Innovation Week happening here in Toronto. Uh, this is going to be a mix of uh, research of students 
Uh, but probably most importantly, uh, you know, the actual technologies, you know, there's going to be opportunities for uh, people to come see uh, the technologies in action and to learn about them um, and actually to physically, you know, touch them and play with them. So that I think it's going to be an outstanding uh, event and many of our partners are going to be there. And so uh, I really encourage people to attend if they in the Toronto area next week. Yeah, and, and this is one of those subjects that's obvious. I mean, you study it and you work in it, but it's also very close to you, right? It's clear that, that yes. these are technologies that have helped you and you think they can help everybody else at the same time. Absolutely. You know, this is, uh, it's always been a personal thing for me over my 25-year career in this, uh, you know, from knowing people who have gone through supporting people with dementia now to my own personal circumstance to, you know, the accident that I had where now I'm aging with my own disability. Mm. Um, you know, so this this is personal on many different levels. Alex, thank you so much <laughs> for your time. Thanks, Ben. Back here with Ryan Reynolds and Katie, you and Ryan were just talking about Canada. Well, we, I just worked in Canada for the last five weeks and I, yeah. you are Canadian. I am very So it Canadian. means inherently you're so kind, <laughs> you don't lie, you say sorry every two seconds. Yes, yes. But on the inside, it's just, you know, bubble gum and broken glass. That's right. <laughs> it really is. A, just I a... was so blown away. I mean, in Canada, everyone says sorry all the time and even a bus was broken down and on the little oh automated yeah. thing, it said, sorry, yeah. not in service. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I was like, what is this place? Yeah, it's very apologetic. Ryan Riddle's there live on uh, Kelly and Mark. I think the show is called Talking About Canadian Kindness. Yeah, that's our reputation, right? I mean, not everywhere, specifically in the U.S. Uh, they seem to have this idea that Canadians are very, uh, very polite. I, and, and I guess it translates in to niceness and polls would agree with this so Condé Nast the travel magazine has done often does these surveys these top 100s and top 10s and top 50s and obviously because they're good clickbait people like them and they love to see themselves in them right um, they went in and asked travelers about the world's friendliest cities and believe it or not Canada grabbed four of the top five so that can't be a coincidence four of the top five friendliest cities in the world are in this country now these scores are out of 100. And really the way they framed it is, you know, you're going to spend money on traveling, you want to you know want to enjoy it and when you get there, you want to be welcomed, right? You want to feel like you're welcome. So they did the top 10. And as I mentioned, four of the top five are Canadian. Number five, Quebec City, 94.92. This UNESCO World Heritage Site is as beautiful as it is welcoming. The only interloper in all this, Dublin, Ireland, 95.37. At 95.51, so we're already getting into the uppers here, Victoria, a place I know well, another Canadian city known for its exceptionally friendly folks. Number two, Edmonton, 95.71. We're climbing. Locals are friendly and ready to welcome newcomers, it says. And the champ of it all, by quite a margin, by the way, like 97.86, so it scores higher than everybody else by quite a ways, is Calgary. This underrated city has great steak restaurants and much, much more um, independent boutiques and a welcoming multicultural community. So Calgary, congratulations, you are number one. But the verdict always has me wondering, and I think you can hear it in that clip with Ryan Reynolds, is it that Canadians are really that nice or are we just that polite? Joining me now are Carrie Colbert and Rob Sorensen, authors of So You Want to Be Canadian, all about the most fascinating people in the world and the magical place they call home. Uh, thank you both for your time tonight. Hi, nice to be here. Hi, Ben. Nice to, yeah, nice to be here. Thanks for having us. 
Carrie, that is that is quite the title. That is quite the title. Is it is <laughs> it tongue in cheek? A little tongue in cheek. It's a little. A little tongue in cheek. So you dug into this, and I'm always ready because we do have. Every time I go to the states, we're always sort of, oh, you're Canadian. Oh, hi, eh? You, sorry, sorry, sorry. And you're thinking, wait a second. I guess that is our reputation. But I never understood just how much people also thought that that was a real sign of friendliness. And I'm wondering where you think if, if it's true, even in your mind. Well, I, I think in my experience, of course, having uh, I'm American and I married mm-hmm. uh, someone from where I just learned was in the top five friendliest uh, cities in the world. Uh, my co-author and now husband is from Edmonton. Great. Um, but I really I was living in San Francisco um, and, you know, it was a very sort of self. I mean, I, I do think the U.S. has the reputation of being self-centered and self-referential, et cetera. And it was a time when um, I was dating Rob and everybody I met when I said, oh, you know, I'd like you to meet so-and-so, he's, he's Canadian. The, the reaction from everyone was, oh, I wish I was dating a Canadian. <laughs> and it was, like a, it was like a, you know, I had won a prize that I had found <laughs> the one Canadian in San Francisco and everybody was jealous. And the funny thing was with the follow-up question was I always said, oh, Really? Have you been to Canada? No. They just had this impression living in California that, you know, the holy grail of boyfriends, you know, was to find a Canadian because um, of their, you know, their kindness, niceness. And I do think um, in my experience, it is it is deserved in general. Um, they are, are nicer, more generous, kinder people. Well, Rob, we're not going to argue with that, are we? <laughs> we're not going to argue with that. Oh, yeah. how, we're not going to argue with that right? assessment. It's like, wow. So, I mean, that must have been interesting and from your perspective living there. I mean, I've spent time in the States. And, you know, I mean, obviously Canada has its – and congratulations on your second place finish just ahead of Victoria, where I am. Just ahead, by the way. Just barely. Uh, <laughs> just barely. Uh, well, we'll out-friendly we'll out you next a little friendly competition. Uh, but what did you, what did you make of, of, of sort of this idea that Canadians were really friendly? What do you think it's rooted in? Because I mean, I've spent time in Edmonton, and it's a really—it is actually a really friendly place. But it's not that friendly. I mean, it's not that exponentially more friendly. Yeah, fair, fair enough. Well, first, first of all, I want to recount because Calgary can't finish ahead of Edmonton. I mean, there's there's no. a rivalry there, as you know. So, uh, so I'm going to go on record on that. But um, I've actually had a chance to go both places. But yes, to answer your question, it is interesting when you you know it is interesting when you travel, and I've I've had the opportunity and the pleasure uh, and the luxury to be able to have, you know to have lived in the states and lived in other countries in the world with, with, with Carrie. And the reputation that sort of comes with you, I, I don't know if it's one that um, it makes sense when you're inside of Canada, but when you're outside of Canada, I think Canadians take for granted their exposure to sort of like just the globe, uh, you know, the globe proper, right? I think that there's this idea that you grow up, you know, French is a national language. I mean, and it seems like, you know, there's, there's concert, you know, people, you know, fuss about it or whatever, but, it's just it's one of those things when you talk about that to the kid, you know, to an American, they'd be like, you actually have two national languages. And I mean, again, we're not unique in the world in that, but that that buildup of exposure to the world um, from, a, you know, just from a young age and being, quote, you know, Canadian in your thinking and, and, and constantly sort of having a comparison against the U.S. in particular, because, it's, you know, it's a big neighbor, a powerful neighbor on the, you know, on our south. I think you sort of you grow up with a little bit more humility and a little bit more of a you know, sense of humor that Canadians are known for. And and also sort of a tolerance. And so when you go out in the world, 
you bring that with you and that humor and tolerance, you know, can often just sort of turns into kindness, right? Because you're, you're interested in someone else's story and you, you know, you want to hear what you're doing. And, and um, I feel like as my time has been here in the States, that sort of comes out not because I'm trying to do it, but just because people, people recognize that as, you know, as something a little bit different. And I think that that gets translated into, into that Canadian. Kind and of. I agree. I think Canadians grow up with a more international point of view and a more global point of view where Americans, I do think grow up with an American point of view. And you do feel that when you go other places, I mean, there's a reason people put the Canada stickers on their luggage when they travel the world, right? Canadians yes. are, are, are known for being, accepting and more accepting and tolerant of other of other cultures and countries than than Americans in general are. And I think that with that with that global point of view comes that um, that that kind vibe of, you know, thinking that, you know, there are other interesting people in the world to meet that might be, you know, that might be different yeah. than you. Carrie, one of the things that I, I, I you know I've spent some time. Obviously, I'm very close to Seattle, so we go to Seattle quite a bit, and I've always found Seattle to be a really kind of friendly place. Um, but one of the things I found about Canadians in general is they tend to be curious about other people, and they tend to let them. Yes. They tend to listen to them, and I found that's one of the things that will make you seem nice wherever you go is if you stop and say hey hey listen no tell me all yes. about your i don't know your muffler business in in bellingham or bellingham rather <laughs> uh that people will think oh that guy's really nice and you're thinking well yeah i'm just listening and i find sometimes in america people are so busy getting set to tell their own life story that canadians are mm -hmm. a little better just sort of sitting back and saying you tell me about you and we'll leave it at that that, I think you're right, and that's where you know what we're what we're saying about the, the kind of general self-centeredness of the states. You know, where every map and every news story and everything is about the states first, and everything else is kind of a distant horizon. I think the Canadians just grow up differently with that, and and it does make them better listeners. And for sure, that makes you you know a more desirable boyfriend for sure. Everyone wants a good listener, right? And I do think that that contributes to the, um, you know, to that feeling of like, these people are so nice because they're actually interested in what I have to say. They're not, you know, looking for the next best thing. You know, I definitely felt at the time when I was living in San Francisco during the dot-com boom and everything, all the men in San Francisco were like looking over your shoulder for the next best thing that might be walking in the door. So to have someone who sat and paid attention to you and was kind and had good manners was a huge selling point in Rob's favor. Rob, man, you're, there's like a, there's has to be a statue of you somewhere. Canada also gave us, the, you know, the, the two best Ryans in the world, right? They gave did. Us the, you gave us Reynolds, you quoted earlier and Gosling yep. who have done nothing but be nice on the public stage and, you know, apparently devoted husbands and dads and always give the nice acceptance speeches and thank everybody and thank their partners. And that is doing a lot for your for the Canadian reputation, those two yeah. guys right there. We gave you Justin Bieber, too. I mean, he comes and goes. He comes and goes. Well, he comes and goes. He comes and goes, <laughs> he comes and goes on that front. Yeah. Yes. Well, and now, see, he's, you know, he's, even he's, uh, you know, married and calmed himself down, hasn't he? <laughs> 
True enough. Yes, Rob. What, what did you do? Do you think it is that sort of? It is that sort of that. It's the politeness side that makes people feel like. So you're a tourist and you're coming to a place that you don't really know. You land in Edmonton or you land in Quebec City, and and you think, oh well, all I want is to go somewhere where they're going to be nice to me or people will be nice to me, right? And I, I guess yeah. that's part of it. People are just kind of innately welcoming to some extent, not always, but sort of innately. Your first instinct is to ask someone where they're from and what you what are you doing here and kind of engage, right? Right. I, I definitely, definitely. And I mean, even look at you, know, even look at sort of the, uh, the Broadway hit that like, come from away, right? When it talks about Newfoundland and, and you know, in the time uh, of yeah. tragedy where everybody landed there, right? right. I think that's, that's a quintessential Canadian story. I mean, it really is. And so things like that, um, I think you hit the nail on the head, which is hearing, hearing people, you know, asking people, you know, what, who they are and what they're doing and why they're doing it and, and actually listening and caring about it before you launch into your own story. It really is. I mean, it's really that simple. And I do, I do think Canadians, I do think Canadians are, are quite good at that. And I feel like that, that gets, you know, that gets the kindness label, um, you know, quite easily applied. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm sure, Carrie, if you've spent a winter in Edmonton, you'll know what it, what it pays to be friendly, it pays to be friendly, well, right? It pays to be friendly. Yeah, you better get friendly and you better stay, you know, you better be able to have someone to cozy up and stay warm with. That's for sure. There you go. Like well, Carrie and Rob, survival, I, yeah, go right? ahead. in those cold, in the it is in the in the coldest cities, you have to you have to be nice and you have to count on each other. Or you might be, you know, yeah, you might be in we trouble. Come, we come by that uh, that willingness to get along quite quite naturally. <laughs> Quite natural, um, Rob. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make sure we t- we move Calgary. Uh, we Shane, no offense to Shane Hewitt, the host of the next show, who's from Cal- who's in Calgary or lives in Calgary. We'll try and move Calgary out of the way next year and move Victoria and Edmonton up to those top twos. Perfect. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, like you said, friendly, friendly, kind competition. But uh, let's let's take care of that. <laughs> yeah, and then we'll then we'll all apologize. Uh, Carrie and Rob, it's been great. Thank you so much for taking the time tonight. Uh, Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks for having us. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.